0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Insider Podcast, brought to you, as well you know, by Vanishing Ink Magic. Now, our youth scholarship for MagiFest has opened up again, so if you know any young magicians under the age of 18 who you think should apply for our scholarship, let them know. All they need to do is fill in an application form and donate a show to a local event, a charity, a hospital, anything they feel appropriate. Um, and then they can apply to get a free ticket for themselves and one parent to come to Magi Fest next January 2020. And it's going to be a cracker of an event. And this all happens through our charity, Share Magic. You can find out more information about that at vanishinginkmagiccom charity. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, something amazing that happened at this year's Magi Fest was Joshua J interviewed a man. A man who survived the Nazi death camps. Through magic. It's a fascinating story, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Enough of me. Let's get on with the show. Over to you, Josh.
1: That's a simple trick that all of us have done, have seen, have grown up doing. A beginner magic trick. Wrong card, right card. But a young boy saw that trick in the most unlikely place. A concentration camp. And it was that trick that sparked an interest in magic that lasted his whole life. This is one of the most interesting people I've ever had the great pleasure of meeting. I would consider him a living treasure. Please welcome to the stage, Warner Reich. Thanks for being here, please have a seat. Warner, thanks for being with us at the Magi Fest. This is your first Magi Fest? Uh, yes. Great. The first one. First Magi Fest. And how long have you been interested in magic? Since
2: May 1944. May 1944. Yes, May, definitely. It was not before
1: and it wasn't much after. Okay. And We're going to come back to that day, but for that day to mean anything, let's start a little bit further back. Tell us where you were born, what life was like before the Second World War. For you.
2: Uh, I was born in Berlin, Germany, and my father was a mechanical and electrical engineer. He worked for Siemens, and in 1933, he lost his job. And uh, also, Jewish children couldn't go to school anymore because there was a restriction as to the number of students per school, which was a very convenient law to exclude uh, Jews. And so we left Germany in 1933 and went to Yugoslavia. And uh, we lived in Yugoslavia uh, rather precariously because my parents lost all the money in Germany and we couldn't sell the house for anything. People knew we had to sell the house, so they gave us next to nothing. And then the taxes, the German exit taxes, were, I think, up to 50% of your property. So by the time we came to Yugoslavia, we had very little. My father had great difficulty finding work because he couldn't speak Croat. And so we lived there. I went to school. Uh, to Yugoslav schools, spoke Croat, had uh, Croat friends, and I lived a normal child. I didn't know much about uh, the uh, the Nazis or persecution because my parents were typical Victorians. They protected the children from bad things, and uh, by the time The Holocaust hit me, I didn't have the slightest idea why and what was going on.
1: So, take us now up to just pre-war, tell me about what happened with your parents, where you ended up in the early part of the war, and then that brings us to you being in the camps.
2: Yeah. My father died when I was 13 years old. And uh, just a couple of months later, Germany invaded Yugoslavia. And my mother was a very, very proud German. And she uh, was like most German Jews uh, in world, involved in World War I. She was a nurse during World War I. And she saved the, life or the lives of uh, quite a few German soldiers who were gassed on the Eastern Front. So they awarded her the Iron Cross with a guarantee, with a a, a dedication, more or less, the gratitude of the fatherland will be with you forever. And she believed it, but she wasn't sure that my sister and I would be safe under these conditions. She knew she was safe, nothing would happen to her. And so she placed me with one family, one couple, and my sister with another couple and the couple she placed me with i couldn't have chosen a worse couple was a couple who worked for the resistance movement so the nazis were looking for them <laughs> specifically it's like uh, hiding your cheese in a mouse trap uh, you know, I mean, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and so, so let's unpack that for a second. What was it like living with people as part of the resistance? Did you, were you hidden in their house or did you sort of just live there openly but nobody no, no, was no. looking I, for
2: you? First of all, I couldn't wear any shoes because we lived in an apartment in the city. And we couldn't, I couldn't wear any shoes because the people in the apartment below would hear me. Okay. And I couldn't go near the window because uh, people from the street would see me. And uh, whenever I called up one of my friends, some strange voices answered. By the, time, after the, by the time the war was over, most of my friends were dead anyway. And so I lived there in hiding for two years. And then uh, I never even knew the people I lived with. They were very uh, standoffish. And, uh, which was very typical in those days, there was a huge separation between children and adults, huge. And uh, so, one morning at 6 o'clock or so, there was a knock at the door, and a group of Gestapo agents came in. And they arrested the couple, and they arrested me too, and they took me down to, I was at that time 15. They took me down to, the, from the age of 13 to 15, I was hiding, and when I was 15, I was arrested. And they beat the living daylights out of me. They asked me questions about what the couple did, and I was playing a big hero. I didn't have the slightest idea that these people are capable and are willing to kill. Really, I didn't, I didn't know anything about this. And so I played the hero and uh, I was crying and bleeding all over the guy's carpet there but he didn't mind. And I was locked up for three days. And then I was shipped to, <clears throat> from there I was shipped to a border town between Croatia and Slovenia. I spent the night there, uh, no, three days there in jail. Uh, jail cell was filled with fleas, must have been some drunk tank. And from there I was shipped to Graz, Austria, and I was there for six weeks. And I was there for six weeks, locked up with three other kids. Uh, two kids had been arrested for burglary, and the third kid had murdered his mother. But I was a low man on the totem pole because I was Jewish. You know, that was sort of a, uh, And one day I looked out of the window into the police station yard, and I saw my mother.
1: Are you serious? Yeah.
2: I saw my mother walking around Even though you left
1: it. Yugoslavia now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Sure, they, she was there in prison and uh, uh, I couldn't signal to her, and uh, that was the last time I saw her.
1: Can you, can you talk about what happened to her?
2: I haven't got the slightest idea what happened to her, and uh, I'm not even interested. Because I went through the camps afterwards, and in my mind, I don't want to see her in any of these camps or in any of these conditions. I hope she died from a heart attack or something like I that. I understand. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't... Uh, I, 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 I didn't even attempt to try to figure out.
1: So, Okay, so then, after you were in that jail, you were taken directly to the camps? And uh,
2: yes, pretty well. I was there for six weeks. And <coughs> after six weeks, they shipped me to Vienna, Austria. I was in a, for one night in a synagogue that had been destroyed during Kristallnacht. And uh, there were about a hundred other people there. And from there, we were shipped two days for, on a two-day trip to Czechoslovakia, to Terezin, or what's known as Terezinstadt. And I was there for 10 months. And I worked there, laid railroad tracks, I made big baskets out of willows, I exterminated now, vermin.
1: You were 15 years old at this 15, time. 15, yeah. And who who's taking care of you? Who are you Nobody, living with? Nobody's Nobody. taking care
2: of me. No, no, That was it. At this point, you... You're on your own. Actually, they took care of you. They told you do this, do that, wear this, wear that, you know, so it wasn't a question of uh, having choices, you know. Now,
1: take us, we'll we'll come back to the camps, but now take us up to the connection of how this all fits in to magic. So you were transferred
2: to? From from, uh, Terezin, I was transferred to Auschwitz. And I came to Auschwitz and I got my tattoo ah. on my arm.
1: Is it is it easy for you to roll it, your
2: sleeve back? No, it's uh, I don't think you can still see it. Here. What is this number? It's a A1828. A, when I was on my honeymoon in Paris, I bought a lottery ticket with that number. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: It lost. Okay.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> so, Bad luck? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
2: bad luck. I shouldn't have had it. Anyway, I came to Auschwitz and uh, they had these bunks and uh, six people on each level. There are three levels. And uh, I was at that time fit and I climbed up to the top level. People who weren't fit, they stayed down at the lower levels. And the advantage of being on the top level was that people didn't pee on you on the, on the lower levels and the diarrhea didn't drip down on you. And uh, I laid second from the edge of the bed and there was a man next to me uh, at the edge of the bed. Uh, there were three of us in one direction and I was in the middle and he was on one side. And he was a man of about 35, very, very friendly. He introduced himself as Mr. Levine, Herr Levine. That's all I knew. I, that's how I greeted him. That's how I conversed with him, Mr. Levine. And there was that. And uh, one, I was there for maybe a month or so. One day I climbed up uh, to the... Uh, uh, Top of the bunk, and there he was sitting with a deck of cards. Now, I I I I find it extremely difficult to for you to visual to explain to you to visualize because we had absolutely nothing when we got into the camp. Uh, we were stripped of everything. We had our hair uh, shaven, even the Uh, pubic hair was shaven. Uh, We had absolutely nothing. We had underwear, which they gave us, and we had uh, uh, a shirt and a pair of uh, pajama pants and a a pajama jacket, and we had this uh, grotesque uh, cap, which we wore. We had a number here and tattoo, and that was it, finished. There there was nothing. There was no piece of paper. When you get, uh, went to the bathroom, there was no toilet paper or anything there. There was no pencil, nothing. And occasionally, somebody smuggled something into the camp. I recall there was one guy who smuggled in a gold Omega watch. Really? He, yeah. He, he managed to sell it for a slice of bread. Because the uh, watch was of no value, you know, and bread was of a huge value. Yeah. So that's. And so and here's
1: this guy, and you see, you come up to the bunk, and he's got a deck of cards. He has a deck of cards, and then he did something really
2: highly unusual. He said to me, Let me show you something. And he showed me this trick and then that's where the unusual part came in without me asking him he said let me explain it to you how i did it
1: everybody's a lecturer
2: no competition to you don't worry anyway the i have i can't recall in my life in magic where somebody would show you a trick and then say immediately, let me explain it to you. Usually, how did you do this? And then they explain. But he said without me even prompting him, let me explain it to you. And he explained to me the move. It was the glide. And I didn't have any cards to practice. But for the next, I spent another year in the camps. I spent, uh, I was there till January 1945, then I was on a, a seven-day death march to Mauthausen, and then I was in Mauthausen another four months, and I, I nearly died. I, I was very, very close to death yeah. when I was liberated. But nearly every day, I practiced that trick in my head. Extraordinary. Nearly, nearly every day or whenever I, you know, could, whenever I was uh, physically, you know, when I wasn't in in pain.
0: And when I came
2: out of the camp a year later, I bought a deck of cards and I did the trick flawlessly because I've been practicing for a year. And I, 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 you know, to this day, I am amazed how well I did it. But I frequently, when it comes to tricks, I practice them in my head. And then when I sit down and do them, they seem to work.
1: It's extraordinary. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> now, so here we are. It's Auschwitz, the top bunk. You see this man, Mr. Levine yeah do this trick but you eventually found out who he was
2: well what happened was in 1977 i was sick at home and i just had i had a copy of the linking ring and i saw an obituary which was somehow headlined uh, you know the holocaust magician or something like that uh, or the Auschwitz magician, there's some sort of a reference to the camp, and uh, I started reading it and it talks about Nivelli and so on may name meant absolutely nothing to me, but his number was very, very close to mine. Mine was eighteen uh, twenty eight and his was seventeen a seventeen hundred. Uh, 67 or something, whatever it was, and uh, then it mentioned somewhere along the line, Levine. And
1: suddenly I connected
2: the two things.
1: And the extraordinary thing was, you had this incredible journey, which I hope we'll have brief time to cover, but post-war, from Europe to England to America, specifically to New York. And Nivelli lived, was it on Long Island? or No, he lived in Manhattan. He lived in Manhattan. He lived in
2: Manhattan. Lived in Manhattan. It would have been absolutely a no-brainer for me to visit with him and so on. And uh, I was really, really mad. Yeah. Because, uh, well, here's a story. Now, I came... Uh, I showed this trick with my entire repertoire of magic. And when I was in London, I bought myself... A, I forgot the name of the place. There's a big magic store. Hamlin's. or. Uh,
1: Hamley's? There's a magic yeah, store yeah, on yeah. Hamley's? or yeah. Uh, and I maybe. bought
2: a couple of things there. And I brought my friends to tears with these tricks. And then I came to the States and I discovered... Tannen's jubilee
1: uh-huh.
2: and for years i went and this was this was the golden period of magic uh, there were people like Slidini and goshman and people like that and uh, i took some magic lessons and i got involved in it and i i fell deeply in love with magic and Still love it today. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. It's, what,
1: uh, what have you seen here that's been interesting for you at, at Magi Fest? Have you seen the shows? And I, I have uh,
2: seen the shows, and I am. Uh, magic has changed. Magic has changed, but uh, it's. Uh, I, the, the biggest thing that I like here is the feeling of brotherhood amongst people. They're willing to share that the, there's a certain love amongst magicians which, uh, uh, what's his name, Nivelli showed me. By the way the, the name Nivelli he used it uh, is Levine reversed, Nivelle, and then he added an L-I, so he became Nivelli from Levine uh, uh, and uh, But uh, this to me is probably one of the big things. I belong to an IBM ring on Long Island, and there is a certain warmth, there is a feeling of security, there is a feeling of being at home. That's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's great. So. uh, the last, the last two things I want to cover before we adjourn for lunch are uh, one is, is a tough thing to talk about and one is a nice thing to talk about. So let's just finish the story because we've shared with them 80% of it. You saw magic, you were fascinated by it, you rehearsed in your head, but that doesn't get us to now. Take us through, I know it's difficult, but... Um, you told me when we first met, and I find it fascinating, just briefly take us through what happened after Auschwitz, this march, and then the final camp, and those last days before you were liberated. Uh,
2: I, first, there was a death march of, uh, of 60,000 people, which maybe 15,000 people survived. How many survived? Maybe 15, if that 15. many. And uh, Well, afterwards, we came to Mauthausen, there was no food there, and who knows, maybe only four or 5,000 uh, uh, survived, because we were not fed.
1: And you were in the snow, you were marching uh, in the well, snow. Well,
2: I was in Mauthausen. When I was liberated, I weighed 64 pounds. I was 17 years old, uh, my toes had been frozen off, and there was a, a Serbian prisoner of war who had cut off my toes on one foot. And, because so you asked him to, right? They, yeah. Well, yeah. no. He, he he saved my life that right. way, and then I returned to Yugoslavia like a jerk, you know. And I was there for two years.
1: And did you look for your family at all, the sister? I, or?
2: Well, it was difficult. This was pre-computer time, you yeah. know. Everything was done by mail or by telephone. Uh, did, did you have family life? Uh, my mother got killed. My father died before the war. My sister ended up in an Italian detention camp, and uh, then she went to the United States. And when I got married, uh, I went to the United States, and we got re- reunited
1: That's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. now life
2: has been very, very good to me. I really have no complaints. When I When I compare myself to the millions of people who died, uh, I have no complaints, none whatsoever. I've been extremely happily married for 61 years, two years ago, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, uh, My wife passed on. She was a real sweetheart. She loved magic, the way. And, uh, so, but uh, no, life has been
1: good to me. You're incredible. So tell us briefly, I, I want to tell them about this, and then I want you to tell us about what you're doing now. Um, this is a book called The Death Camp Magicians by William Rauscher. It details not only uh, Warner's life, but also Novelli's life as well. It's a beautiful book. I read this book, found out that Warner lived... Uh, an hour and a half away, called him up and said, I want to come to you, I want to meet you, I want to, to know your story. And he said, I'll take the train in and come to you. <laughs> Got off at Penn Station, walked 10 blocks. Sorry for asking, you're how old? You're, can you tell us how old you are? Pardon? Can you tell us how old you are? Uh, will, you, will you share that?
0: Yes,
2: I'll share it. Let me figure it out. No, I'm n- <laughs> I'm 91.
1: 91. 91, he walked 10 blocks, showed up at my door, we opened the door, he had flowers for my wife, his only complaint was we put a big spread out of, you know, food while he told us this story and we're crying on the ground, we're listening to him tell this story, and his only complaint was he wanted us to finish the food so that it wouldn't go to waste. Um, Okay. So anyway, this book—he um, he has brought some books, or he has some books here, and he will sign them for you outside in the in the spot where all the other stuff will be. But I want to end on your activism, the things you're doing. Um, I know that you went to Hong Kong uh, last year, yeah. and you spoke, and he was voted the number two most interesting person to visit Hong Kong. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. And um, tell us a little bit about how you are sharing what you're doing. You, uh, you speak, you're active.
2: I just came back from Germany. I spoke there seven times. I, should have sp- I was asked to speak once, and then they Googled my name, and they asked me to speak seven times. And it was a sort of a strange experience. I, I spoke in Portugal. I spoke in England uh, about... Twenty-five years ago, when I retired, uh, I saw in the local newspaper that the high school is giving a course in Holocaust studies. So I called them up and said, Hey, do you need an exhibit? (laughs) So I... uh, uh, They said yes. So I went over there and I spoke. And they asked me to come back again, and again, and again. And then my grandson was born, and then my first grandchild. And I said to myself, I don't want this thing to happen to him or to anybody else, whatever happened to me. And uh, I started speaking in schools, and I volunteered doing that. Last year, I spoke 96 times. And uh, that's great. I um, In the Jewish religion, there is a principle of tikkun olam, of repairing the world. And I'm trying to make my little, tiny little contribution towards repairing
1: the world. So that it's going to be a bit better. Thank you for coming. Ladies and gentlemen, Warner Wright. Thank you. Yes, of course. Thank you, Thank you so much.